The following material is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find out more about the Institute's work by visiting www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you all here, and uh, thank you, Ted, for, as ever, a warm welcome and for your hospitality. So, this evening, uh, I'm actually here this weekend to uh, speak here, and then tomorrow at uh, the Breakforth Conference on the New Atheism, I'll be speaking tomorrow, uh, and then back here on Sunday morning. Uh, so, it's, um, it's great to be here for part one, and uh, my topic for tonight is Christian Witness in a Hostile Culture. Christian Witness in a Hostile Culture. Uh, when you hear a title like that, you might think, well, we're going to hear uh, a lecture on evangelism, on evangelism. Uh, but actually, that's not what I'm going to talk about this evening. I'm sure you hear a good deal about evangelism. It's a very important topic, of course. Um, but I want to talk about the trajectory, the purpose, the ultimate purpose of Christian witness in a much broader sense and consider some of the cultural implications of that as our witness to the truth of the gospel fleshes itself out. Now, in order to do that, I want to go to Acts 17 and uh, read you some verses from Acts 17, verses 1 through 7. Acts 17, verses 1 through 7. Typically, when you go to Acts 17... People think you're going to be speaking about Paul on Mars Hill at the Areopagus as well, and that's not my subject for tonight either. So Acts 17, verses 1 through 7. Then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring, out to the, bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things, so taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture for a variety of reasons, but one of the first things you notice here is that this passage is about Christian witness. But the effect of that Christian witness is much more than what we might call personal evangelism, where one or two people gain an interest in hearing about their personal salvation and want to commit their lives to the Lord, as important as that is. You see that the immediate witness to the reality of who Jesus is results in uproar. It actually says that the, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. 
Well, it's come for me already, look. I've hardly started. We're turning the world upside down here. The, uh, the question that strikes me when I read this is, how many of us in our Christian witness could be said to be turning the world upside down? That, uh, that what they were saying about the gospel, what they were saying about the identity of Christ, what they were saying about the kingship of Jesus Christ meant that their witness to who Jesus was is evidently in a hostile context. Look at it. They're dragged out of the... Jason is dragged out of the house for harboring them. They're accused of acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. And what were they accused of? Well, saying that there was another king, Jesus. And the accusation was true. They were saying that there was another king. And that was, as we're going to see in a moment, acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. And this is why they are turning the world upside down. And I wanted to start there because I want us to recognize what the, the ultimate implications of true Christian witness are. If there's never a time in our lives, if there's never a context in which as we share the reality of the gospel, it feels as though there's tension around us, as though people want to drag us out to the public assembly, as though we're not turning the, the established order of things upside down, there's perhaps something wrong with the clarity of our witness, with the faithfulness of our witness. Because this was what Christian witness meant in a hostile culture. For generations now, we've been accustomed, until this present point, really, to Christian witness in a friendly culture. Christian witness in a friendly culture. Uh, Ted, on the way here, was telling me about a recent vacation he had in Montana and how he's just quite taken aback and surprised by the fact that every time he sat down for a meal in a restaurant, the people at the table next to him were bowing their heads to say grace. You know, publicly, all these public acts of wrecking to the point where it feels like everybody's Christian here. In Canada, increasingly, it's like the opposite. If you say grace, you're kind of like, is everybody looking? You've got to do it quietly. Because it's so countercultural now in the public space to bear Christian witness. So we've been accustomed for generations to Christian witness in a friendly culture. Now we're having to get accustomed to, again, Christian witness in what is becoming an increasingly hostile cultural environment. Why was what these Christians saying so controversial? Why uh, did it produce this kind of reaction? Well, clearly, first of all, the Jesus that they were proclaiming was not a per personal spare time, pastime, Spirituality, Jesus, is just for your, the interiorization of your personal faith. Clearly, it wasn't just, well, you know, we go to the temple of Diana and, uh, uh, you know, we, 
follow the emperor and worship him, and uh, we worship our ancestors, and you worship Jesus, Jesus, that's cool. Hey, that's really cool, man. That's fine. That wasn't that kind of a faith that they were declaring. No, this was immediately controversial, and it immediately evoked a response. Why? Well, because a shift here was taking place with respect to the locus of salvation. The world into which they were preaching about the Christ was one in which salvation was by politics. The Greek philosopher says that, said that we were political animals. That we were political animals. That was the essence of what it meant to be human. And if you were not a citizen, especially in the Roman Empire, in, in what we would call the Greco-Roman world, well, you really had no rights, you had very little value, you had little, if any, say in society at all. Salvation was something that was organized politically. These were what the, uh, the, the political utopias that were written, Plato's Republic. These were utopias where the philosophers, the thinkers of the age, would organize your salvation, plan your salvation. But here was a declaration that salvation was by grace through faith in another king, the king of all kings, Jesus. In Galatians chapter 4, move on. So here we've got a, I'll go back to my slide, which I missed. The shift is, for, is from politics to grace, from Caesar to Christ. Paul says in Galatians, in the past when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now since you know God or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back to again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Those weak and bankrupt, the elemental forces that he's talking about were the things that the people of that age worshipped. And they saw those elemental forces as embodied in political authority. Now, they found the concern for the church as they preached, as they witnessed to the person of Christ and the kingship of Christ, was the nature of true freedom. The nature of true freedom in a, in a culture where a third of the people you met on the street were slaves. And the gospel, the Christian church spread and grew first, most quickly amongst the poorer class, the slave class, and it quickly became an urban phenomenon. And then people of all the different stratas of life began to become Christians. But the theme that comes out repeatedly again and again in the gospel is that if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. If King Jesus sets you free, you shall be free indeed. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Well, there's a reminder of the gospel right there in the second part of that text. This is the God who wants all kinds of people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's one God, Paul says, and this is critical. There is one God, and there's only one link between the divine and the human. There's only one mediator between the divine and the human, between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. And this is the thing that the early church, in their witness, wanted new converts and the culture around them to understand that there is one mediator between the human and the divine. There's only one intermediary between man and God. And that meant freedom. And this is what Peter says. He says, live as people who are free. Live, this is your witness as God's people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God comes first, honor the emperor. So the freedom of which they spoke is grounded, first of all, in the person of Christ. It's personal freedom, so it's it's freedom from slavery to sin and death. That's the first implication of the gospel. We are personally freed from servitude, slavery to sin and death. Then it's social freedom, that's the freedom of the brotherhood. And the implications are also social and political. The relationship of Christ the King is the mediator between man and God to all authority and power. This is really what Paul is saying to Timothy about prayer. He's saying, pray, intercede. Now, if you intercede for somebody, what does that say about your status? I mean, Christ intercedes on our behalf. Or if you were to intercede on somebody else's behalf, that the intercessor's status is higher than the, the ones for whom they intercede. Well, look what Paul says. In, make intercessions for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions. Why? So that we can live a peaceful life. We can live in freedom. Godly and dignified in every way. That's what he was saying. That's why we should intercede. Now, this is the kingly, the royal priestly calling that Christians have. And this gospel means freedom. Personal first, social second for the church, the brotherhood, and the implications are beyond that. They're cultural, they're political. And the call was not to be revolutionaries, to overthrow by force of arms existing government. That wasn't the witness of the church. No, prayer was urged upon God's people. Godly living, honor for those in authority, and obedience to God. That's what, when we, when we think of Christian witness as modern evangelicals, we think of, okay, what's the evangelism course for today? You know, what's the five-step evangelism program? Okay, well, evangelism of that nature was, of course, important, central in our lives, but prayer, godly living, 
honor for people in authority, freedom of the church, freedom of the brotherhood. These are all part of our witness to the identity of Jesus Christ. And then maybe you and I will get accused of preaching, proclaiming another king. The early Christian church, then, in the context of hostility and tyranny, continued this emphasis on Christ as the one mediator between man and God. When we, when we share the gospel and witness to the truth of the gospel, our primary appeal should not be some sort of attractional model where we're simply saying, well, you know, you, you've got a nice house, nice car, still feel miserable, try Jesus, you know, you've got golf, you've done this, you've done, you feng shui your apartment, nothing's working, you know, try Jesus. No, rather, it's a declaration of true freedom, that there is actually only one mediator between the divine and the human. And actually, one scholar has argued that this made uh, the emphasis of the early church, especially the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, one of the most important dates in history, because it handed... It handed uh, statism, it's the, the, the religion of statism, salvation by politics, a major defeat. This is what one church historian says about the Council of Chalcedon. The Creed of Chalcedon affirmed the full deity and full humanity of Christ in two natures. The church, which in the East did so much to disintegrate the empire because of actually its heresy which crept in, in the West became the builder of Christendom, which however attenuated still survives as Western civilization. And the same historian points out that when the barbarians invaded the empire, the church stepped in to assume many of the functions of government. The great task was to convert the barbarians to Orthodox Christianity. The process of their education and civilization largely fell to the church after the fall of the Roman Empire. So part of the witness of Christian people was through education. It was a civilization and cultural task. And this led to the flourishing of the first free institution in the history of humankind, the Christian church. The first truly free institution in the history of humanity. A church, an institution that asserted its independence of totalitarian political power and authority. Some might say, well, the family had you know, a degree of independence in the ancient world. That's true to a degree. But usually you were, a, you were a, a serf of some sort or a slave. And therefore your family was owned and certainly, maybe the father could, could say he was free because he had the, in the Roman world, he had the power of life and death over his own wife and children. He could toss his wife out on the street, take in a mistress, disinherit him, her, and his kids at will. It wasn't until the Empress Theodora and the Constantinian, not, not Constantine, but um, Justinian, and the uh, Justinian Code introduced Christian law into the Roman world that there was true freedom for the family. 
So this, this insistence on the kingship of Jesus Christ, the witness of the church, produced the first truly free organization, the Christian church. Do you want to know why there's an encroachment on the freedom of the church today? It's because we're turning to a pagan worldview. The return to a pagan worldview steadily erodes the life of all previously free institutions. People are afraid increasingly in the churches across this country of even having me come and speak in their church, lest I say something that the press might get hold of. That sounds, you know, homophobic or transphobic or it sounds like hate speech. In the church, Well, it was from here on that the uh, church in the state saw themselves as intimately related in the history of the West. We haven't got time to rehearse that story. It's complicated. This is not to say that we should that the church and state are to be merged. It's just that they saw themselves as intimately related under God. So, what did this Council of Chalcedon do to help envision freedom? Well. You have to understand that in the world into which this gospel was being born witness to, when they were witnessing to the truth of the gospel, they witnessed into a world that was, because of pagan philosophy, statist. The state was an inescapably religious institution. It was priestly and saving. The state was priestly and saving. That's how it saw its role. It substituted God and saw the, the center of any divinity in history as centered in the emperor or the king, what we would call the state. And this was true of all the ancient realms, the Egyptian realm. You can go back just one slide there for me. The Egyptian realm, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, the Roman empires, the rulers were viewed and worshipped as gods. Think about Pharaoh in Egypt. Think about the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. That was a confrontation between the God of Egypt and the God of Israel. Moses was his spokesperson. You know, Pharaoh would have spoken through a spokesperson because he was a living God. Pharaoh was the son of the sun god, Ra. When you read the Old Testament and you come across the worship of Baal or the worship of Moloch, Molech, Molech just means king, Malcolm, is where the name Malcolm comes from, king. Baal, Baalism was state worship where the Babies were brought and put on the burning basins and sacrificed to the state. This is what you're reading about in the Old Testament. This is why God used the Israelites to bring his judgment upon the Canaanites and upon other nations in the Older Covenant period. And in these pagan views, salvation was not by grace, by, by 
the grace of God, salvation by faith in Christ, of course, or in trusting in the covenants of promise in Israel. It was by self-deification. You could graduate to the status of a god. It was usually only the kings and emperors and people in high position that could make that step, of course, but that was, that was, that was the process. You could graduate to the status of a god. So in various guises, the faith of the ancient world was the form of statism. And so for the early church, the issue was very simply, in their witness to Christ, it's right here in our text, Christ or Caesar, 17 verse 7. Remember that text, Acts 17 verse 7. They are acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. This came to very vivid expression as they were preaching the gospel in the first century. The Roman emperor Augustus Caesar had declared himself the savior of the world. This is what he said. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. And that was on the coins, published on the coins in the Roman world. Do you recognize that text? Is that reminiscent of any other passage? This is because the Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus. Do you know what that means? High priest. He was the high priest. This was what the emperor cult meant. And the gospel, the Christian gospel's radical descent from this was seen by the Roman world not simply as a narrowly religious offense, or you're being religiously offensive. It was seen as a political offense to preach the gospel. Some new bylaws right now in Edmonton. Well, what if you call people today to repent of their sexual sin? Turn from it. Be changed and follow Jesus. You might well be violating a bylaw in Alberta. Well, Peter's rebuttal is right there in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Begin to see the implications of the witness of the Christian church? The witness to the truth of the gospel? This wasn't just a declaration of Jesus as personal savior. It was a resistance to a particular view of reality that saw the political world as the ultimate sovereign and lord. It saw the king or emperor or the state as ultimate lord and sovereign. You know, last week, after 17 years in Canada, I became a Canadian citizen. So I'm actually officially Canadian now. First question Ted asked me was, how did it take you so long? So I, well, I was a permanent resident for a long time. But it was an interesting experience. And uh, when I went into the courtroom with my wife, and only my eldest daughter was born outside of Canada, so she was being sworn in as well. And after you've gone through all the process and everything else, finally your date in court comes with a group of other people. You go in, you're given a copy of the Canadian Charter, which still has the preamble at the top, recognizing the supremacy of God. 
And you're told beforehand that you can take the oath on a religious text, right? It's optional. It used to be on the Bible. Now you can take it on a Quran or, I don't know, a copy of the Jedi Warrior's handbook or something. Um, but a, on a text, and if you, but if you can't swear an oath, then you, you, then you affirm when you're swearing in. You, you either swear or you affirm. Because if you can't swear on a higher authority, you can only affirm in your own name. And you can't really take an oath. So we elected, we were the only ones in the room, to swear on the Bible. We weren't the only people in the room. We were the only people in the room to swear on the Bible, is what I mean. And I found the largest black Bible I could. Because our surname begins with a B, we were on the front row right in front of the judge's bench, and as we were taking our oath to, uh, to recognize and submit ourselves to Queen Elizabeth II, which, as a Brit, was simply a reaffirmation, um, I took this large Bible out, and there we were, the three of us, with our hand on the Bible. Now, I didn't have a difficulty with that because Queen Elizabeth, in her coronation oath, swore to uphold the law and gospel of Jesus Christ, submitting herself to his ultimate sovereignty. You read the coronation oath, it's a very interesting reading. So, we can do that. We can be citizens, and Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul used his Roman citizenship to escape persecution on a regular basis, wherever he could. And he appealed his case all the way to Caesar. But we recognize first the ultimate sovereignty and authority of Jesus Christ. You see, is the state God incarnate, or was the state to be under God? Both views associate religion and the state. Now, this, this Christ or Caesar question, as we witness to the gospel, is no less real in our time today. And we're increasingly seeing it now. In a recent article that was reflecting on the alleged failures of the American government to protect, to prevent the terrorist attacks in, on September 11, here was the former leader of the Liberal Party, remember him? Harvard professor. This is what he said in an, in a, in an article in the Globe and Mail. It was, he was talking about the concept of sovereignty. This is what he said. A sovereign is a state with a monopoly on the means of force. It is the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. It's the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. Now, there is essentially no difference between that idea and the philosophy of pagan Rome. It's precisely the nature of this conflict that has produced the problems for the church in China. That is the underground church in China, which I thought as a boy was people meeting underground. But actually it's the church that is not registered by the government. Now in a rare moment of clarity for the BBC, uh, 
a BBC commentator understood and grasped the situation in China well. This is what he says. It's not on the PowerPoint. He says, after the communist victory in 1948, missionaries were expelled, but Christianity was permitted in state-sanctioned churches so long as they gave their primary allegiance to the Communist Party. Mao, on the other hand, described religion as poison, and the cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s attempted to eradicate it. Driven underground, Christianity not only survived, but with its own Chinese martyrs, it grew in strength. Since the 1980s, when religious belief was again permitted, the official churches have gradually created more space for themselves. But listen what happens to the official churches in China. They report to the State Administration for Religious Affairs. They are forbidden to take part in any religious activity outside their places of worship, and they sign up to the slogan, Love the country, love your religion. In return, the party promotes atheism in the schools, but undertakes to protect and respect religion until such a time as religion itself will disappear. Except the religion of communism, obviously. What the authorities consider non-negotiable is the house church's refusal to acknowledge any official authority over their organization. Why? Because who is the authority over the church? Jesus Christ. You want to know why the church has never been subject to property tax, income taxes, and all of that in the West? Because it's God's embassy. You can't tax God's embassy. Right, the Canadian embassy in other countries is not subject to tax. It's sovereign authority. It's sovereign territory. It's Canadian territory. Well, despite the oppression that they were under, Chinese communities grew, Chinese Christian communities grew, and worshipped Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with Christ as the ultimate source of allegiance. And today there are more Christians worshipping on a Sunday morning in China than all of Europe put together. Over 100 million. The issue for us now, as it was then, as we witness to the freedom of the gospel, is one of lordship and sovereignty. We have to answer these same questions. What is the basis of freedom? Can the state be religiously neutral? And is God in Christ the object of ultimate allegiance, or is man enlarged to be assigned a role that supersedes that of the Son of God? Those questions have to be answered by the Canadian church today, by Canadian Christians as they witness to the gospel. Otherwise, our witness is to a radically denuded, truncated gospel that applies only between my ears. Not to be spoken or uttered anywhere else. Now, when the Council of Chalcedon met back in the 5th century, they met to deal with a point of a pastoral concern to do with Christology. That's the doctrine of Christ that would have an amazing and tremendous bearing on the future of the Western world. And they probably didn't appreciate at that point the implications that it would have. What did they do? Well, they came together in the face of facing down heresies and they clarified the doctrine of Christ. The two natures Fully God, fully man, in one person. They reaffirmed the Council of Nicaea. This, this is the, 
the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fully man, he's fully God. But they clarified this union of the two natures, that it was without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. What they were saying was that in the incarnation, a human being is not divinized. It's not paganism. It wasn't that God adopted a human being and divinized them to be his son. Nor did divinity, God the Son, the eternal word, collapse into humanity. Rather, there were two natures in unconfused union. The one mediator, Paul says, between man and God, because he's fully man and he's fully God. And the indirect result of this formulation was that the Christian faith could never be melded with paganism or anti-Christianity because the natural doesn't ascend to the divine. The bridge is golfed, oh, the, the, the bridge is golfed only by revelation and in the person of Christ. And so salvation is no longer by man or by means of politics. This meant that no human institution could profess to, to carry in itself absolute divine authority. Not the state, not the church institute, not any institution. Only Christ has absolute divine authority. Think of what the implications would be if the state, which it has always done in the pagan world, claimed that authority for itself. If the state could be conceived, we're not getting quite the whole slide there, but it's, that's um, Aristotle. Man is by nature a political animal. If the state could be conceived as an imminent divine human order, then there was no possible appeal above or beyond the state. In other words, if the state, if what the state says, the king says, the emperor says, is the divine word, carries that kind of authority, absolute sovereignty, what appeal do you have over and above the state? To appeal against injustice, tyranny, wickedness, Evil. There is no appeal. If you're defined by the body politic, what happens to liberty? Liberty, on this view, is non-existent. Now, you might have permission from the state to exercise certain activities. So the early Christians, as they witnessed to the gospel, were told, offer incense on the altar to Caesar, Say, Caesar is Lord, and then we will give you a license. And you can put that license on your house or place of worship, and you go worship any god that you want. But just acknowledge the absolute lordship of Caesar. And the faithful church wouldn't do it. And that's why they were persecuted. That's why they, went, they were thrown to the lions. It wasn't because people didn't like their, their dress code. is because they refused to deny the absolute sovereignty and lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, if that is not the case, true liberty can't exist. Permission, a limited permission, which can be taken away, can exist. But no liberty apart from and beyond the state grounded in our creation as God's image bearers redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means law and life will be redefined by government statute. You want, to, you want to know why the modern Western state thinks it can redefine marriage? 
redefine human identity. Marriage isn't a political institution. It's a pre-political institution. When Jesus is asked about marriage, he says, well, it was not that way from the beginning. But in the beginning, God made them male and female, and a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's not, a, that's not established by politics. It's not defined by the state. State can't redefine marriage can't redefine human identity. Those are all pre-political things. Wherever the state denies God, it establishes itself as the divine per se, as a new source of divinity. You see, without God, the human beings see themselves as cast adrift into a chaotic environment, which is what the pagans thought. They feared. They feared the world. They feared everything in it. Fatalism, the fate of the gods, the capriciousness of the gods. And since there was no sin from which they needed to be saved, what did they need salvation from? They needed salvation from their environment. The problem was their environment. Change the environment. The solution to the human problem then became the planning and the control of a elite to save man from himself and his chaotic environment. This is a remarkable play on things, right? Especially this whole climate issue. I mean, here here is the here is the way to to you know, it's funny, uh, you hear all these people yakking on about climate, uh, twittering about it from their iPhone as they fly to their next business meeting. We at the Ezra Institute actually have an organic farm, but never mind. That's, uh, we actually do care about the environment, because um, creation care is a mandate given to us by God. Right, but this climate apocalypse is a marvelous way of seizing absolute political power and authority over everybody's life. It will save you from your environment. There's no sin to be saved from anymore in, in, the, in, the, in the mind of the modern cultural elite. No, the only thing you need salvation from is climate apocalypse. They should come and live in Edmonton. It's every year. So you can see how the, the how you can see how salvation. Look at you. I'm, I'm showing to you exactly what was going on two thousand years. Salvation shifts from sa salvation from sin and death in Jesus Christ to salvation by politics from a chaotic environment from the from fate. But the Christian creed means that. God's reign isn't mediated by immediately by human institutions, but by Jesus Christ alone. All authority and power must serve him, including the state. That's what Romans 13 makes clear. It has to serve him as his diaconate, his servant. It's God's servant. So the implications of this Christology, this vision of Christ, militate against every kind of statism, and it provides us with a principle of freedom. What does Jesus say himself? If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Son, it is for freedom 
that Christ has set us free. Do you want to be subject to a yoke of slavery? We can make our appeal directly to God. That's what freedom means. Intercede for kings and governors and those in high position, Paul says. We make our appeal directly to God. And Peter says to the Sanhedrin, he says, when they say, stop witnessing to the gospel, stop preaching Jesus Christ, he says, should I obey God or men? The modern era, though, has seen this re-emergence from the French Revolution of this, this politics of power, the pagan politics of power. The Hegelian politics of power. German philosopher Hegel, he said, the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. The state is the embodiment of world spirit, of divinity. And that has meant the gradual denial of the right of the family, the church, and other organizations, any real independent existence. And believe me, you feel the squeeze of it increasingly when you're you're involved in Christian institutions of any kind, schools, if you're involved in leadership of schools, churches, home schools, Christian charities, you feel the squeeze all around you, around your neck. When liberty is defined, you see, politically, and this is the problem, we've shifted from a theological to a political definition of freedom. That's uh, Rousseau's social contract. A political definition rather than the theological definition of freedom, not a gospel-centered definition. On this view, liberty is destroyed because it's always trying to marry the opposing ideas of nature and freedom. These are the two big ideas of the modern Western world, nature and freedom. Nature versus freedom. So you've got a deterministic worldview, an essentially fatalistic worldview. It's all chance. There's no God. There's no design plan. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. So it's determinism, it's fatalism on the one hand. That's nature. Nature is deterministic. On the other, we insist on our freedom, on an absolute freedom in our own personal lives to do whatever we want. The freedom of the human personality. If I say to you, I'm a four foot uh, eleven Chinese lady, you have to accept that. Absolute human autonomy. Absolute human autonomy. The question for our culture became, how do you have unity? How do you maintain unity in a social order, in a culture, in the midst of all this radical diversity? How do you maintain unity in principle when you've got people doing what is right, all what is right in their own eyes. Well, the solution that the so-called Enlightenment, which is perhaps better labeled the Endarkenment, came up with was a social contract. That society should be reduced to the idea of autonomous individuals, almost like mathematical principle, who are absolutely free, 
with all these natural rights, and they come and they have a contract together that they can update as they go along, but they, they have a contract to guarantee one another's freedoms. To prevent the breakdown of the social order under the pressure of the autonomous thinking and ethical creativity of people, the state has to be emphasized more and more. And actually what Rousseau made clear is that in this contract, you're exercising your freedom. But once you're in the contract, to go against what the, the, will, of the, the, uh, the will of the people, right, the general will, actually is, and that's an abstract idea, to go against what the general will is, is to deny your own freedom, and then you must be coerced to be free. There's the paradox. You'll be forced by the state. It was a totalitarian concept of the state. And of course it led to the reign of terror and the Napoleonic dictatorship. But the Christian gospel produces the mindset of a biblical libertarian because we see Christ and his sovereignty, his salvation, his law as the source, as the root of human liberty. God says, here's ten commandments, and the rest is freedom. They live by these, love God and love your neighbor, and be free. That is freedom. Was it G.K. Chesterton who said, if you don't live by the ten commandments, you'll live by the ten thousand commandments? The 10,000 commandments. You see, the question is, is God or the state man's savior? The answer of Chalcedon is emphatically for God and liberty. Western liberty began when the claim of the state to be man's savior was denied. This has to return to our public witness to the truth of the gospel now. This is part of the Christian witness to the truth of the gospel now. Remember, if you go all the way back, and I'm almost done now, but uh, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, and we'll work our way from there to Revelation, so stick around. Um, if, you, if we go all the way back to Genesis 3, and you look at the first temptation, it totally makes sense that the temptation to our first parents was self-deification. What did, the, what did the tempter say to our first parents? Has God really said, you will not surely die? You will be what? You will be as gods. You will be as God. You can determine for yourself good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. You can usurp the sovereignty of God. You can be as God. You can be the source of definition. You can redefine reality as you see fit. Redefine yourself as you see fit. All of that is implicated, is there implied in Genesis 3.5. You won't surely die. You'll be as God. You'll enter a new kind of gnosis, a new kind of knowledge. And this was the dream of Babel, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. You see it very quickly. Wickedness and then false worship and a mini global village where everybody's speaking the same language and they're building a tower, a worship of heavenly bodies, and you have the founder of those first great empires, Nimrod, who was in rebellion against the Lord. 
and Nimrod is probably the basis of the gods and goddesses of the goddesses of the ancient world. I've written an article on that. You can get it in uh, a chapter on that in my book, Gospel Witness, I think. Now, this this uh, prioritization of freedom and liberty in the Christian gospel and opposition to any usurping of Christ's sovereignty does not mean we're against civil government. It doesn't mean we're opposed to godly government. Christians have always participated in that and with enthusiasm. But what has terrified us historically as Protestant Christians is the consolidation of too much power into the hands of any one person or institution. Why? Because of the problem of sin. That's why we've had a division of powers in the West and an independent judiciary, ostensibly. An executive branch, a legislative branch, a judicial branch. Rather than civil government interfering with and dominating and regulating every aspect of people's lives, we saw magistrates and politicians as ministers, as servants. What do we call them? Civil servants. Prime ministers. Public servants. Interesting language. They do need to be reminded of that periodically. It's a ministry. It's a service. Who too? To occupy an office, it's a service to God. All of life is service to God. Now that's part of our witness too. When you go back to the New England Puritans, Oh, there we go. Let's just see what Rush Dooney says. The state, according to Scripture, is a ministry of justice. It's a ministry. Think about that for a moment. What do we call when the the the, uh, the government of education is called the ministry of education? What about corrections? The ministry of corrections. It's all ministry. It's all service. Whichever, wherever Christ ceases to be man's saviour, their liberty perishes. The state asserts messianic claims. Move on to, let's move on to the, the New England Puritans. When the Puritans came to the, uh, to the Americas, they recognised there was a complementary relationship that was supposed to exist between church and state. Separate jurisdictions, different spheres of authority, but a complementary relationship. The church ministers the word of God. The civil authority bears the sword. They said Moses and Aaron should go together and kiss one another on the mount of God. Moses, state, Aaron, the priestly office. And this view continued for a long time. It's right there in Canada's founding uh, documents, this whole idea. But what we're describing here is what a, a great Dutch theologian and Prime Minister, actually, for a while. He did understand it was a ministry. Who's Dutch here? Okay, there's a few of you. Who's heard of Abraham Kuyper? A few of you, okay. Sphere sovereignty. You familiar with this idea, some of you? This needs to be part of our witness as well. It's a creational principle. What Kuyper said is there's various spheres of life. The church and the club and the school, the state, the guild, the family, and various others. Yes, these are touching. These various spheres of life, they do touch. The medieval model of Christendom would look like this. The idea was you had to try and churchify all of these things. Right? Not Christianize them, churchify them. You have to sprinkle the church's grace pixie dust over everything. Right? Throw holy water on it, and then you've brought it into the realm somehow of the church institute. 
But that's not what our witness is. We're not trying to say that everything has to come into the domination of the church, the control of the church, the vicar of Christ, as the Roman church claims. No. The uh, contemporary statist model, though, looks like this. This is the pagan model, looks like this. This is what we're in right now. Everything controlled and regulated. This is what we call a totalitarian. They're both totalitarian views to an extent. Totalitarianism means a parts-to-whole relationship. One area of life swallows all the others as though they're part of that greater whole. But the biblical model, the Christian model, is Christ over every single area of life that enjoy their own area of authority and jurisdiction and sovereignty. And I put it to you that this is part of our witness to the truth of the gospel, that the family and the church and the school are under Jesus Christ. Now, I haven't got time to talk about how, well, you know, because they are touching. You know, if the school is abusing children, well, that's a criminal matter. That's a, the state has to step in. If I'm beating my wife, well, that's a criminal issue. The state has to step in, right? They touch. But it's not parts to whole relationship. Now, this is the basis of freedom. As I stood there in the court and I was looking at the judge, behind the judge was the Canadian coat of arms. And you know what's on the Canadian coat of arms, don't you, in Latin? From sea to sea. Psalm 72, verse 8. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And to the left of the coat of arms was a portrait of Queen Elizabeth II, bless her. Uh, this, so this idea, it's not, it's not like it, it vanished yesterday. Right? I mean, this, this basic idea has been with it, it's still with us to an extent right into the present, but people have forgotten about it. Think about what, so this was a debate about the Lord's Day Bill in the, in the Canadian Senate, July 9th, 1906. Have you ever read any of the founding debates of Canada? I have. And this was a debate over the uh, Lord's Day Bill. This was a liberal senator. We must not forget that we claim to be a Christian nation. We are a Christian professing nation, at least. And as such, we should respect the laws of God. We generally make our laws in accordance with the provisions of God's law. His law says, thou shalt not kill. And our law says that the man that sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. God says... God's law says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And our law says that a man who is guilty of perjury is liable to be punished and imprisoned for a violation of the law. We confirm all these commandments by legislation. Why do we not confirm that commandment which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? We are responsible to a higher authority. The responsibility is that we should recognize God's law that is established and published in his own word. That's a Canadian senator in the 20th century. Now, whatever we think about the Lord's Day and, you know, Sabbath and so forth, Sabbath law, which came into the West, 
was welcomed as deliverance from slavery because you could be forced to work seven days a week. So when Sabbath law was introduced, people welcomed it as liberty, as freedom. And they believed there would be national consequences for disobeying God's law. Another liberal senator, Senator William Ross of Halifax, now, the individual or the family, the community, province, or dominion which observes the Sabbath day as it should be observed is one that will prosper. And if we are to enter upon the downgrade by setting at defiance the fourth commandment, we will go down as a nation by doing so. Well, now look at our national debts, our provincial debts, with a tail, not the head. You see, in Scripture, Empires, kings, governments, and their fortunes are a product of God's active justice to bless or curse nations. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Remember what God says in Proverbs 8.15, By me, kings reign and decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. He's the ultimate sovereign. He's the ultimate authority. Let me wrap this up. I've said enough. The question before us is Christ or Caesar? In the witness to the kingship of Jesus Christ, Acts 17, 1 through 7, in a hostile culture. That is now part of our witness. And it has a certain price tag to it. Ultimately, there is no disestablishment of religion from the state any more than it's possible for the state to be neutral with regard to morality and law. There is no, you, you can disestablish a church, you can't disestablish faith from the nation. Somebody's worldview, somebody's morality is being legislated. Somebody's vision of truth and justice is being legislated. Is it going to be Christ? Is it going to be God's view of the kingdom of God? which we're called to pray for, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A couple of law professors made this absolutely clear. They said, the modern state, for the modern state to remain entirely impartial is we submit an impossible feat. The idea of a purely neutral state in which there is no official endorsement of the true and good of a political community that eschews the notion that it acts on the basis of substantive values is a mirage. The established position will inevitably exclude the worldviews of some citizens. There is, we contend, always an established state orthodoxy. For the Christian, personal freedom, social liberty, Christ, kingship, and our salvation are one. They're one idea. Personal salvation, social liberty, Jesus' kingship. They are one idea because there is one mediator between man and God, the human and divine, and that's Jesus Christ. You see, in the end, our freedom is relative. Your freedom is either relative to God or man. Freedom from what to be what. We blabble on about Babylon, about freedom in our culture today. Freedom is not self-explanatory. Freedom from what to be what? That's the question. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, no longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. I think I'm done. We've got a few minutes for questions, Ted? Thank you for listening. Feel free to share the material with friends, but do not charge for or alter it in any way without the written consent of the EICC. Thanks again.